tables. Uh, you're going to need both. I guess technically you could stand the whole time, but that may get weird. Um, but grab your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 11. That would be great. And uh, we're going to need uh, to spend some time in the text there with one another. Um, if you've watched any TV over the past several weeks, um, you might have seen a series of commercials by DirecTV uh, that are advertising for cable. Uh, or excuse me, they're advertising for DirecTV over and against cable, drawing this massive contrast, and they are presenting to you uh, individuals that you should know by by, by sight, perhaps by name, um, usually they've been professional football players because it's on the front side of football season. So the commercial goes like this. You have a well-dressed football player. Let's say it's Peyton Manning. He is there, well-groomed, looking sharp, in a suit. He is the DirecTV subscriber. Then you have the Peyton Manning version, which perhaps is the high voice Peyton Manning or the skinny legs Peyton Manning. And lo and behold, he subscribes to the competitor. And uh, the commercial goes back and forth about how cool the DirecTV Peyton Manning is and how nerdy or high-toned voice the cable-subscribing Peyton Manning is. And then the tagline in every one of these commercials is the same, don't be like this me, be like that me. And they want you to obviously subscribe to DirecTV and, and get the NFL Sunday ticket and do all of those things. Uh, this morning, our text in the book of Mark is essentially along those lines where Jesus is drawing a massive contrast for us between two very, very distinct and yet important realities. And really, the big idea this morning that if you walk away, I think it would just be tremendous for you to gather that outward or external appearances are no substitute for internal transformation. External appearances are no substitute for internal transformation. And what Mark is going to do in recording Jesus' cursing of the fig tree, his entrance and cleansing into the temple, and then on Tuesday morning, the lesson that Jesus derives from the fig tree is going to draw this out for us in some pretty stark detail. External appearances are no substitute for internal transformation. So before we go any further, would you pray with me? We'll hop into the text, and, but we need to ask the Lord to come and meet with us here this morning. So would you join me? Father God, we thank you for this morning, and uh, Lord, we pray that you would, uh, um, you would come and meet with us, and you would speak here in our midst. And so, Lord, we're, we're asking that you would come and meet with us in a special way, that we, we might leave here this morning, know that we have, we have heard from you, that we have met with you, that we have, we have understood more of who Jesus is, we've understood more of, of what he has come to do, and that in turn we would, we, would, we would love him more, we would serve him more, we would follow him even more. And so, uh, Lord, we ask for that, we need that, we pray for that and ask that you would be gracious in doing that for us. And it's in the good name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, this event of Jesus cursing the fig tree is an event that Matthew records. And, and there's some similarities, clearly, because it's the same event that Matthew and Mark are recording. There's also some differences. 
Matthew simply telescopes the event. He looks from a long distance away. He reports the details of the event. Mark gives us a little bit more detail. He, he doesn't really zoom in, in in terms of a microscopic level, giving us every bit of detail. But Mark does give us more detail than Matthew does. And if you looked at the accounts and, and did some work thinking through what each of them said, they're not contradictory, but they do write with a varying degree of detail because Matthew is from a long range looking at this event. And, and Mark gets a little closer and gives us a little bit more detail. And so as we hop into Mark 11, Beginning in verse 12, let's read for and together what Mark has for us. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Now, Pastor Danny last week had us on Sunday of the Passion Week as Jesus is coming in triumphantly on a donkey. Everybody is shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus comes, as Mark records in verse 11, he looks at the temple, he surveys the scene, and then he leaves. And he backs out and he goes to Bethany with the twelve. That is Sunday. Mark now gets us into Monday morning. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he said to them, or said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now before we get to the cleansing, we need to make sure we understand the fig tree. Because the fig tree is actually incredibly representative of Israel. And so Mark is is doing this, and, and I believe Christ did these events in this way, because he is drawing out loudly a contrast and an illustration of how the fig tree is fruitless, and how Israel and all of their temple worship heightened at the Passover week, is also fruitless. But people critical of the Scriptures will point to an account such as this one, and they'll go, wait a minute, if Jesus knew that the tree wasn't in season for fruit, then why did He curse it for doing what it wasn't supposed to do, or what it was supposed to do? You tracking with that? There's this criticism levied against the scriptures that if, if, if Christ and the disciples really knew that the fig tree was, was not in season, how could they legitimately go and expect and anticipate there to be fruit on the tree? Well then, if he curses that tree for doing something that it had no control over, well then you begin to spin out all of these other conclusions such as he's, he's perhaps not good or he's capricious and, and the understanding of the person and character and work of Christ just flies out of the window. Well, okay, we got to do a little bit of work in regards to figs. Unlike our trees, which take apple for an example, there is a season for apple trees. We're currently in it and you can go to any orchard in and, in and around our little area, neck of the woods, and find apples still on the tree. You can pick them. You can enjoy them. They are delicious, pun intended. And then you have a season where apples are not growing on the tree. Perhaps there are little buds, but there may be leaves, but there's no fruit to enjoy. Well, figs operated very differently. There was actually two seasons of fruit on a fig tree. There was a spring season and a fall season. 
And what would happen is the spring fig would grow, and it would grow in such a way that it wouldn't be quite as big as the fall fig, and, and it would be called a knob by those local to that area. And what would happen is that the knobs would actually begin forming in the fall after the leaves fell off and the fall harvest was taken. And so you have the repeating cycle now. The leaves have fallen off. The fall harvest of the fig tree has happened. The knob begins to get produced on the tree. Well, the knob actually formed before the leaf ever did. So by the time you get to spring, when the knob should have been fully formed and edible, a leaf or the leaves of the tree would have also bore significance and description of that. So when Jesus comes to the fig tree, there should be these little knobs. It's not the fall harvest of the figs, it's the spring harvest of the figs. They were edible, they were eaten primarily by peasants and poor people. The presence of leaves in the spring on a fig tree indicated there should be knobs. The absence of knobs, however, was an indication that that fig tree would not even have a fall harvest. It had all of the external appearances of fruit, and there was nothing happening. You begin to see some of the contrasts that Christ is now portraying for us, that Mark records for us, takes us back to our big idea that external appearances are no substitute for internal transformation. It was not the fall season for figs, but it was the season for knobs, and those knobs would not have been perhaps the more delicious fruit the tree would have yielded, but they were able to satisfy hunger, and Jesus comes upon this tree, having traveled a couple miles from Bethany, beginning to descend from the Mount of Olives to the Kidron Valley to re-ascend a few hundred feet to go into the temple, and he finds no fruit to satisfy his hunger. And he curses the tree, and we have revealed for us in the following verses the fact that that is an illustration of the fruitlessness he would find in Israel when he arrives at the temple. And so Mark continues recording for us in verse 15 that they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And, as, and he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. External appearances are no substitute for internal transformation. This is not a new idea that Jesus is confronting. This is really the continuing and consistent theme throughout Mark as he engages with the Pharisees and engages in this system of Pharisaism and legalism that they have constructed because it was all about the external appearance. And he comes upon them at the height of their celebration during Passover week, and he finds fruitlessness. So we've got to do a little work as we think about the cleansing of the temple. This is actually the second time that Jesus cleanses a temple or the temple. The first was in John 2, after he turned the water into wine at the wedding of Cana. John records that he went into Jerusalem at the beginning of his ministry, and there he cleansed 
a temple. That's where we have recorded that he gathered a leather whip and began whipping and overturning tables and casting out those who were in the temple. Mark and Matthew don't record that detail about this cleansing. So the image that I have in my mind of flannel graph Sunday school pictures of Jesus and a whip, that's the first cleansing. It's not this one, but they are uniquely similar and there are similarities throughout both of them. I think what perhaps, if I can just add a little bit of conjecture into the story, when Jesus enters into the temple on Sunday night, during Passover week, the day before he curses the fig tree, I wonder if he is observing whether or not the lesson that he had tried to communicate three years prior had been heard and was being heeded. Clearly, we learn come Monday that it had not been, that his cleansing of the temple three years prior at the beginning of his ministry had not done anything in regards to changing the hearts of those who went right back into the practices that they had been participating in. But it's the cleansing in John 2 that actually leads to a Pharisee coming to Jesus by night and asking him some pretty important questions. You will know the man as Nicodemus, recorded in John chapter 3, where Jesus and Nicodemus are having this conversation while Jesus is in Jerusalem on the front side of his ministry. And the, the conversation they're having is about how one is saved. And Nicodemus is asking questions in regards to this relationship between external appearances and internal transformation. And what does Jesus say? You must be born Again, no one born who is not born again will enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is having a hard time wrapping his mind around it. And we have the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's in the context of the first cleansing that those verses are given and those statements and conversations are had. And we now forward three years to the second cleansing. Jesus comes back to the temple and finds the exact same things happening. And he has the exact same response. It's time to clear them out. In regards to where this would have happened in the temple, you've got a picture of the temple mount. What is in the center of the picture there? It looks like a a tall building. That's where the holy place and the holy of holies would have been. That's where only the high priest would have been able to go once a year and only by blood sacrifice. But you can see uh, other courts that come out of that and other walls being built up around. And those were different places that different individuals were able to come into the temple. And, and, and if, you were, if you were a woman, you could only go so far. And if you were a male by a certain descent or by a certain tribe of Israel, you could go a little further. Uh, but there's a section here, and, and I hope you can see it, um, right in here. You have what is called the court of the Gentiles. And if you can see here, it doesn't look like much on the screen, but there's this little fence. Probably was about three feet high. Fence wasn't intended to keep anybody's eyesight out, but it was intended to be a barrier that would be visually and physically restricting. And it was restricting the Gentiles from coming any further. This is actually the what I believe Paul had in mind where he talks about in Ephesians 2, the dividing wall of hostility. 
Now that wall came from an understanding of the law that separated Jews from Gentiles. But when Christ came and died for all men and all nationalities, that wall has been broken down. But this was a literal wall that symbolized those differences. Most people would agree that it was in the court of the Gentiles that all of these animals were being bought and sold. That all of these instruments were being carried through. Now in regards to the buying and selling of animals and the practices that were happening, Mark records for us that Jesus began to drive out those who sold, those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the table of the money changer and the seats of those who sold pigeons. The word drive out there that Mark uses is the same word that he uses to describe what Jesus does in regards to driving or casting out demons. We are not talking and thinking through this in a way that has Jesus walking up and saying, excuse me, would you please leave? He has taken issue with the practices that are happening and he is very aggressively, yet not by sin or sinlessly, clearing and cleansing his father's house. It's estimated in 66 AD because Nero, who was the emperor of Rome, a crazy man, wanted a census of the Jewish people. This is four years before actually Nero's army will come and conquer Jerusalem and tear down this temple. He ordered a census and the priests decided that Passover week was the best time to do a census of the nation of Israel because it was when everybody traveled to Jerusalem. You'll remember when Jesus was a boy and got left into the temple? He was at the temple because his family traveled during Passover week. So this was a period of time in the nation of Israel where everybody pilgrimaged to this place to participate in the Passover week and have their sacrifice offered. Well, in 66 AD, it was recorded that there were some 260,000 sheep slain. 260,000 sheep slain. I asked Jack the other night when we were at his farm, how many cows does he have? He's got a little less than 300. 260,000 sheep. It's actually been also recorded that one sheep lost its life for 10 people. And so in 66 AD, as the priest did this census, it is estimated there was 2.6 million people in Jerusalem at that time. That is a host of individuals. It perhaps, and again, I'll conjecture and maybe use my imagination a little bit, it perhaps is the reason why on Sunday, when Jesus rides in on the colt and everybody is in an uproar, Luke tells us the whole city is stirred. John records twice, there is a large crowd gathered. It's perhaps why at that point in time, when they were hailing Jesus as king, the Roman army didn't take him out. You get 200 or 2 million people feverishly, all collectively excited about something, and you try to go and and stop that? I, I doubt the Roman army had enough troops in the city at that point to handle such an endeavor. That's me using my imagination. And this is also 
30 years after Christ was there that these numbers were recorded. But I think we're dealing with similar numbers of people. We are talking about millions of people in the city. We are talking about hundreds of thousands of animals. This was not one or two animals occupying the court of Gentiles that the Pharisees were selling because somebody couldn't travel with one. This was hundreds of thousands of animals. And what they would do, and the reason why you wouldn't travel with your own animals, because that animal had to be offered in such a way that it was without spot or blemish. Well, in this system, where they were upcharging on the sale of animals, it is not far to imagine that they would have found lots of spots and blemishes to point out. Add to the fact that traveling with a herd of sheep yourself provides a little bit more difficulty for the journey. I think it became just more easy and practical to go and buy your own animal in the temple and have it sacrificed. But the Pharisees and religious rulers and the priests, they found a way to rob their own countrymen. Because the sale of these animals came at some pretty good margins of increase. And Jesus takes issue with that. And it's interesting because in the cleansing of the first temple and in Matthew's account of this cleansing and in Mark's account of this cleansing, all three of them all record that he also took issue with those who sold pigeons. Now, why are pigeons that important? We see pigeons in major cities and, and we wonder if we're going to kick them because they're so plentiful and they don't seem to move very quickly when we're walking down the sidewalk. Well, pigeons were a provisional offering that the poor would make. If you were unable to afford a sheep as the law required, you could substitute that sheep for two pigeons. See, they had this whole system constructed that sold animals for profit. And they robbed their countrymen, and they did so even at the expense of the poor who were coming to pilgrimage and coming to offer the sacrifice that the law had required, and they were taking advantage of them. Jesus also, or Mark also references that the money changes were there. These are currency exchangers. The law required that a shekel be given for every two males 20 years and older, or a half shekel for every male. And it didn't matter whether you were rich or whether you were poor, you had to pay a shekel or a half shekel if you were 20 years old and male. Well, they had a very specific type of coin that the temple would accept. It's a Tyrrhenian shekel from the area of Tyre. And you would come traveling from around the region without that currency. You'd have your own currency, probably currency that was accepted in the region of the area of the world that you lived in. And so you would need to exchange your currency for the shekel. And they found there a way to increase the margins of profits by upcharging the currency exchange. And all of this is happening in the midst of grand external fanfare and religious piousness and belief that they had some things figured out. And Jesus takes issue with them because external appearances are no substitute for internal transformation. They had all the external appearances that you could want. And there was no heart 
change. And so Jesus, in verse 17, is teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? They had taken the court of Gentiles where the nations were allowed to gather. They had filled it with hundreds of thousands of animals and currency exchangers to rob their own countrymen and effectively force out the sojourner and the pilgrim to come and worship the Lord. This is the height of hypocrisy. This is the height of religiosity and legalism. And the chief priests and scribes heard it. And they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Well, certainly the religious rulers took issue with Jesus' actions. Certainly they found issue with his teaching and their practices and his condemnation of their practices. But the crowd was left astonished at his teaching. It's one of several times that Mark records for us that astonishment was the response of Jesus' words. And we have him leaving the temple, going back out of the city as he had come in earlier in the day. And one of the things that I think we need to just pause and think through here is in regards to this big idea that external appearances are no substitute for internal transformation. So if you're here this morning and you think that because you're here, or because maybe you put something in the plate, or because at some point in your life you had gotten in a baptistry and you had gone under the water, because you, you, you've tried to do a bunch of good things this week, or at least stayed away from the bad things, and, and you think any of that makes a difference before the Lord. The most loving thing that I can do for you is tell you that you're dead wrong. Because external appearances are no substitute for internal transformation. And it's actually the words of Jesus that he has with one of these Pharisees after the first cleansing of the temple in John 3 that you need to hear more loudly than any other word that I say this morning. You must be born again. External appearances are no substitute for internal transformation. All of the things that you're trying to add on the outside to work your way somewhere, perhaps just put on a good front, it matters not. You must be born again. And there's this massive contrast between the teaching and the ministry of Jesus and the teaching and practices of these Pharisees. And to heighten the contrast and to give further explanation to it and this big idea that external appearances are no substitute for internal transformation, Jesus on the following day is going to pick a very specific example to illustrate these truths with and he does so by picking prayer. And so in continuing the next verses of Mark, we now have the lesson from the fig tree. Look at verse twenty. With me, and they passed by in the morning. This is Tuesday. They saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that. 
what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. In some ways, we could be left wondering, what in the world does prayer have to do with cleansing the temple? And I think the answer is found in this. There are several times throughout the scriptures that prayer is used as an example to cite the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and those who would have been in charge of this temple system. Jesus does so in Matthew 6 when he's beginning to teach his disciples about pray, praying. And when you pray, do not stand in the streets like the hypocrites do with loud words so that everybody else can hear. They, they prayed, but they prayed for the praise of men. And he contrasts that and says, no, and when you pray, pray our Father who is in heaven. You have Luke 18 being given to us where Jesus uses an example of the Pharisee and the tax collector standing before the Lord and the Pharisee standing there praying, God, how great am I? Aren't you glad I'm here? Aren't you glad I fasted twice this week? Aren't you glad I gave money to the poor? And that being contrasted by the tax collector who is unwilling to lift his eyes to the Lord, but beats his breast saying, be merciful to me, God, I am a sinner. Prayer was something that the Pharisees engaged in, but they did it in a way for the praise of men, and they did it in a way that trusted in their own actions. And Jesus takes this opportunity to contrast external appearances and an internal transformation by picking prayer as his illustration, I think because prayer is one of the most personal things we do in our relationship with the Lord. Having conversation with anybody is an incredibly personal thing to do, but you then magnify that in the fact that we're talking to the creator of the universe who we've been told to approach as a father. When I have a conversation with my kids, that conversation matters because they're my child. When we pray, that conversation matters because we're his children and he's our loving father. And so he takes that opportunity to illustrate for us this contrast of internal transformation and external appearances by giving us four characteristics of powerful, fruitful, and effective prayer. And the first, very simply, it's just, it's on the screen as it is in the text. Have faith in God. This is contrasted by faith in one's self. Have faith in God. If you've had internal transformation, there should be a growing faith, a continued growing faith in your relationship and walk with the Lord that you believe in growing and increasing measure that He is the God of the impossible. And your faith, your powerful, fruitful, effective prayers begin there. That God is who He says that He is. Have faith in God. Well, the second characteristic of powerful, fruitful, effective prayer is this, that there is boldness before God. And this is is contrasted with arrogance before God. 
And Mark records for us in verse 23, Jesus' words, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. There is a boldness before God that those who are his children approach him with. Now let's do a little bit of work on what this mountain means. Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives at this point. That's where he was when he cursed the fig tree. More than likely, he is just referencing the mountain that is below his feet. But rabbis during this day were actually known as mountain movers if they were able to solve seemingly unsolvable questions. And so culturally, there would have been an understanding and a a figure of speech, if you will, that would have referred to teachers as mountain movers, and I think Jesus is begging on that figure of speech while referencing a physical mountain beneath them in speaking to the boldness they approach God with. This is contrasted by arrogance. Now, I did a quick Google search this week and said, and asked Google, has a mountain ever been moved? And to date, nobody has ever said, mountain Go to the sea. It's just not happened. So we, we need to understand the principle that Jesus is communicating here. Because these, this verse and verse 24 just after it are verses that can get twisted and have for a long time and get hijacked to communicate something I don't believe the scriptures do. But I think the principle in regards to what Jesus is saying about this mountain being moved is that we approach God with boldness as opposed to arrogance. The Pharisee in Luke 18 approached God with arrogance. God, how great am I? I fasted twice this week. I tithed. I gave alms to the poor. God, how great am I? But no, he's telling us it's not arrogance you approach the Lord with. It's not on the basis of your external actions that you approach the Lord with. It's on the basis of the internal transformation that he's done in your heart that you boldly come before him. Well, the third characteristic of powerful, fruitful, effective prayer is that there is confidence in God. Look at verse 24 with me. Therefore, I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. This is a favorite verse of people that are a part of a particular brand of theology that says if you name something and you claim something, God is obligated to give it to you. So you want a boat? Pray for the boat. You want a million dollars? Pray for the million dollars because God is obligated by his word that if you name it and you claim it and you pray in faith believing that you've received it, he's obligated to give it to you. And I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying at all. Our understanding of how we approach God in prayer absolutely has to be informed by other passages of scripture in regards to to prayer. We won't have the time this morning to look at all of them, but I will reference one of them. I think the greatest example of somebody wanting something very specific and yet finding himself surrendered and submitted to the will of God is Jesus himself in the garden praying, Lord, if there's any way for this cup to pass, let it happen. 
but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus approached the Lord with boldness. There was a specific request that his life wouldn't be required of him. And yet as Mark records that in chapter 14, he five chapters previous had told us that Jesus had completed the third prediction of his death and suffering and resurrection. And that he comes before the Lord boldly and confidently and prays, if there is any way, yet not my will but yours be done. See, when we approach God in confidence, we approach Him confidently because of His character, because of His goodness, because of His sovereign will, and because of His promises. God is not a genie that we come and rub and get what we want. He is a gracious Father who gives us things for our good. And notice here that the confidence and boldness that we approach God is not with external fanfare either. Think about how my kids approach me. Usually there's running and airborne jumping involved. There's not a special formula my girls or Tucker have to come to me with to get my attention. No, they come to me because I'm their father. And they come to me boldly with all sorts of requests. Dad, can we have ice cream right now? No, you may not have ice cream right now. That's a bold, that's a bold request. It's 9 a.m. What are you thinking? They come confident, though, in who I am. And we approach the Father boldly and we approach Him in confidence because of who He is. And it's not because of ex- any external fanfare that our approach is granted, but it's because of what he has done in our lives, this internal transformation that should lead us to praying very differently. And the last characteristic of powerful, fruitful, effective prayer is unbroken fellowship with other believers. And this is contrasted very specifically with the fact that the Pharisees, after Jesus overturned all the tables and began teaching, sought To destroy him. They wanted to kill him. The same word Mark uses in chapter 3 verse 6. Where he healed the man with the withered hand in the synagogue. And he was in the region of Galilee near Capernaum. And they sought to destroy him. And in verse 25. Jesus says this. Whenever you stand praying. Forgive if you have anything against anyone. So that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. It sounds like Jesus is saying that forgiveness is conditional. We've got to do just a little bit of work here. Because I believe he is saying that very thing. On what type of condition are we speaking? I do not believe that it is a condition in regards to our salvation. Because Jesus has very, very detailedly spoken about an internal transformation and how we approach God. And here even uses your Father who is in heaven. I believe he's talking about those who are saved and yet find themselves currently in the process of sanctification. Being made more into the image of Christ. 
And what he is saying here is that if we come boldly or confidently before and to the Lord, but we've got bitterness and issues with our brother or our sister, there will be a barrier to the fellowship that we have with the Lord. He says the same thing to husbands in 1 Peter 3 in regards to the relationship with their wives. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers will not be hindered. And that is a sobering verse. If I'm not treating my wife with the graciousness and love and respect that she deserves, the Lord is going to oppose me. That's sobering. I think in the same way, Jesus' words in verse 25 are sobering. That the fourth characteristic of powerful, fruitful, effective prayer is unbroken relationship with other believers. And so Jesus, in using this illustration of prayer to, to begin to draw out the contrast between external appearances and internal transformation, I think one of the questions as we just go back and look that we need to ask is, what does your prayer life look like? Is it characteristic of what Jesus just laid out? And I'll tell you, I'm, I feel like I'm learning a ton about this right now and just in some ways drinking from a fire hose because there, there has been for large portions of my life uh, prayers that I've prayed that, that probably are, are unspecific enough that however they're answered, I can, can kind of conclude that like, oh, well, thank you, Lord. And I'm not sure that's what he wants. And as we began thinking through fall festival, if you took one of those cards, there are specific prayers on that. As we thought through some of these things in regards to our adoption, there are very, very specific prayers that we are praying that we, we've just shown and, 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 and given to our immediate family and, and them only. But there's some specific things that we're asking for. And whether he does it or not is according to his will. I don't arrogantly stand before him and go, wait a minute, hang on, I want that, I believe that you're going to give it to me, so where, no, we, but we confidently approach him. God, we, we believe that these things will meet the needs that we have. We're, we're coming before you boldly asking for those things. And as a good, gracious, sovereign God who has given us countless promises. He does what is for our good. And so the answer that he gives is in accordance to his sovereign will. And it is for our good. And we've been called to approach boldly. And we've been called to come confidently. Because those who have been internally transformed have a prayer life that looks a very specific way. And it is in contrast to those who with external appearances are trying to somehow merit something before the Lord. And so I would ask you to just come and join me in learning about this. 
because I feel like I don't have a whole lot of answers to give you. I've got an exhortation from the Scripture that this is to be how my prayers look, and I've probably got a lot of years where they didn't look like that at all. But those who have been internally transformed should pray a certain way. And we should pray with faith in God, and we should pray with boldness, and we should pray with confidence, and we should pray and stand before Him having taken care of the business that we might have with other believers. And so this morning as the band closes us, we're going to sing a song that the lyrics of the song actually will will lead us to meditate and think on these things. about, About how God has always been there and how we're to approach Him with specific things in this way. But I would ask you as you stand and sing that you might contemplate a little bit. Are there those that you have not forgiven? Are there those that have bitterness, that you have bitterness in your heart towards? Or perhaps are you just trying to offer such simple, generic prayers that maybe the Lord might be inviting you to come before Him boldly and specifically asking things of Him? How He answers is according to His will. And you and I must be submissive to that. And we can have confidence that however he answers is ultimately for our good and a part of his purpose to conform us more into the image of his son. So as the band leads us, I invite you to stand with them and contemplate and sing and spend time before the Lord. As we sing this song, I think that Some of the words that hit me the hardest every time we sing it are the bridge where it just says, I lift my eyes up, my help comes from the Lord. And I just wonder each and every time, is is that where my focus is? Is it on the Lord? Um, I mean, you can see those words right there. I will not fear the war. I will not fear the storm. Um, And the next lines are, my help is on the way Um, because he is the Lord. And as we pray to him, we We need to believe these words in our heart. We need to just put them before God and and continuously look to Him. So let's sing together. Close our many.